From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from anywhere USA and currently residing in Jacksonville, Florida. She is the co-founder of SDR Defenders and sales developer at M-Train. Please welcome Nikki Ivy. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Thank you so much. That is hands down the best introduction I've ever gotten. <laughs> Uh, so thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to have you. I always joke because people have tend to have some kind of reaction like that. And I'm like, okay, just take this snip, put it on your phone. And just anytime you walk into a room, just hit the play button. <laughs> Either that, or I think for me, it needs to be my wake up alarm in the morning. <laughs> like if I'm feeling like, I don't know if I want to get out of bed today, that's the thing that's going to make me get up. Okay, when we get this episode edited, I will be sure to have my media coordinator cut out just that section for you so you have it as an audio file you can save to your phone. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, so she is Nikki Ivy, as I mentioned, co-founder of SDR Defenders. What is SDR Defenders? Well, it is a group of revenue professionals on a mission to transform the way organizations think about talent and elevate the role of an SDR. So instead of treating them like crap, maybe they get treated like an actually important role in the company. SDR Defenders is also dedicated to uh, making the profession, the sales profession, more inclusive. Nikki is also a sales developer at M-Train, which is an AI-powered workplace culture and training platform, helping organizations meaningfully impact the way employees experience ethics, respect, and inclusion at work. Our topic today is coaching your champion to gain executive buy-in. Nikki, why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you? It's A, it's something that for the first half of my career eluded me. Uh, I didn't understand how this impacts a sale, how it impacts a deal. I would think if something went wrong, it was that they teach this thing, and you and I talked before about me coming out of retail sales, they teach you if you didn't get the sale, it's you know because of one of three things, right? Me, the money, or the machine. Uh, and so, you know, the machine being the product. And so I would think, hey, if, if I couldn't find anything, you know, wrong with those things as far as you know where they might have gone wrong in the sales process, what else? What other factors are affecting my ability to get things across the line? And then when I found that, you know, I'd have a, a champion or you know a stakeholder that I had a relationship with but that so much of my own success depended 
on that individual being as effective a seller as I am internally. And that's just really unrealistic. And so that's why I thought I needed to start to be uh, more proactive about that. Today, it's critically important because of the folks that I sell into, right? And, and many of the folks that, you're, that are listening may be in, in a similar situation. So I sell into uh, HR professionals, but more specifically, culture leaders, chief diversity officers, and this is a role that notoriously doesn't have the kind of access to, to budget that they might need to get things over the line. And so most of my conversations revolve around helping those folks um, get just what we're talking about, helping them get uh, executives bought in. Uh, and in, in my case, right, in some, on some fairly intangible ideas or ideals even uh, when it comes to trying to get things across the line. So I don't believe I'm alone in that. And then so hopefully the things we'll talk about today, I can, I can help somebody out. Yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation because you know, I've done a lot of episodes on this show about different parts of the sales process. And I feel like oftentimes when we think about making the sale, we just think about it in the almost like the silo of directly the person you're talking to, you know, what conversation do you have with them? What questions are you asking them? How do you get, how do you book next steps? Things like that. But oftentimes, and, you know, as you kind of highlighted there, there's a collaborative process on their end. Uh, and it requires some, you know, to use the title here, it requires some coaching of that person, that point of contact who becomes your champion to be able to take it internally and push through uh, a deal on your behalf. So we're going to dive into that a whole lot more. Uh, before we do, let's take a minute here and just learn a little bit more about Nikki, the person, the legend, the goddess herself. <laughs> so Nikki, um, in your introduction, I mentioned you're from Anywhere USA because you had previously told me that you're an army brat, so you've just lived like, I don't know, everywhere, probably a dozen different places in your life. Um, I always liked, and you're not the first army brat I've had on the show, and I'm always curious to know... Um, of the different places you have lived throughout your life, um, whereas compared to me, I have lived, you know, I, I grew up 30 minutes away from where I've lived since being an adult. I went to college in, in the city of Chicago. I live in Chicago now and I grew up outside Chicago. So I have never really moved around outside of like a couple apartments here and there in different neighborhoods. You've obviously had a much different experience than that. So what do you feel it's taught you about relationship building? I think being the new kid, it sort of sets you up, right? You've got two choices, right? And you learn this after maybe your second or third round. You can proactively just wear who you are and try and, you know, suss out your tribe. Uh, or you can decide that that's too scary and, and you know, live a, a, a a fairly isolated existence and you know I'm an extrovert and so th that was never even an option for me um, it didn't mean that I always was successful I, I had very few friends in high school <laughs> you'll be surprised to learn <laughs> everybody doesn't always like me no uh, I <laughs> that is what it taught me right it taught me this this idea that it's there is a level uh, to which we underestimate how in control we are of getting relationships, of building relationships. I think a lot of it, as we get older, friendships happen less organically, 
right? Just, just because of the environments that we're in and, and the way that life and experiences change us. But I take that same sort of schoolyard, hey, do you want to be my friend? I like Barbies too. I take that same sort of spirit into building, not just into building relationships in this sort of broad way, but specifically in, in interpersonal interactions. I'm always looking for little clues as to what people like uh, and, and trying to find commonality with people because as I think as we're seeing in the world, uh, something we kind of got to, we have to work at. It doesn't always just happen. I think the other dimension of that is growing up on army bases, the diversity is sort of built in, right? And so any sort of fear or narratives that, are, that, that exist out there about this group or that, because there's so much firsthand um, exposure to difference, right? And to a bunch of different cultures and ethnicities, harmo very harmoniously in my childhood on these army bases, um, not just coexisting, but like being communities together, that was my default. That is what I thought was just the way things are supposed to go. And so in addition to this spirit of, hey, do you like, you know, Ninja Turtles? I like Ninja Turtles too. <laughs> there is also this um, non-existent barrier that sometimes uh, cultural differences present for people that I credit to having grown up on, on Omni Bases. That's an interesting take because you, you talked about there how this idea of like community has just kind of been embedded in you. And, and you know, SDR Defenders is a community you've created. Um, at the same time, though, and for everyone's backstory, or so everyone has the right backstory, I reached out to Nikki originally because a couple months back, I had read a feature on her in Crunchbase about what she was doing with SDR Defenders. And in that article, one of the things you mentioned was how in your professional career in sales, you have almost always been the only black person on your team, or if not the only black person, the only black woman at the very least. And that's such a stark contrast to what you're saying you grew up with. So I understand this next question could easily be an episode in itself. <laughs> but if we make the effort here to, to maybe just have it be a one question, one response thing, what kind of... I guess, what was it like initially experiencing that contrast and did it change the way, did it change your worldview? Oh, absolutely. And here's exactly where that started. So uh, from about first grade to eighth grade, I lived in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. And that is where most of the things that I've described to you come from, right? This idea of these, these, harmonious, you know, cultures melding together, right? The American dream as I see it. And then the summer before my freshman year in high school, we get uh, stationed in Southeast Georgia. And this is at a time when Georgia, their, their state flag still had the Confederate flag. I didn't know that was a thing. And the culturally it was just very different. There wasn't that harmony. There wasn't that sharing. There were those barriers and that created in me this sort of, urgency that you see in what I'm doing with SDR Defenders that you hear when I talk about these issues that led me to work at M-Train really. Um, so you're right. It was a stark contrast. It was a culture shock. And I didn't know how else to meet that other than, you know, to call it out and, and try and against the odds and against the grain see what kind of community might be able to come out of that as well. Because I, I just, you know, for better or for worse, I believe that we're at our best when we do that. And I believe that 
it is who we can be, although it isn't who we always have been. I think that gives us a good step towards learning about where you do a lot of your uh, sales work now, which is through the company M train. I mentioned in the introduction, it is a workplace culture and training platform, helping companies impact the way that their employees experience uh, ethics, respect and inclusion. But can you give us a little bit more background on just what exactly is M train uh, and more on why you exist? Yeah, yeah. So typically with the way that folks approach culture in a workplace is through engagement surveys, which folks do annually or semi-annually, right? And that's where we're asking folks these questions like, you know, I feel completely heard and seen. People who look like me are represented on this team, things like that. Um, Like I said, mostly once a year. Uh, And then there's the training that folks have to go through so that they don't get in trouble because it's like regulated by the state. Um, and so that is what passes for, for culture, right? But most of the folks who are in those positions leading culture initiatives at those orgs understand that it's important to get beyond checking those boxes, right? Getting beyond like counting people of color (laughs) and getting seriously, because that's, that's what it comes down to a lot of places when, as far as how they think about diversity. And so what we do is say, hey, okay, you've got your survey, your engagement survey. So you know kind of how people are feeling, but not, that's not prescriptive at all, right? You've taken the temperature and maybe found some issues, but there's that survey in and of itself is not complete uh, in helping you move the needle. And then as far as the check boxes stuff, you know, you did it for that purpose. You did it so that you're in compliance. But what happens with this gap in between, right? What are people really experiencing on the sales floor? And the way that we help folks understand that is like you said, through this platform. So this platform is built around these uh, content pieces where we take stories from the headlines and what people are actually experiencing, right? Like the story about what happened at Starbucks where the cops were called on on a couple of gentlemen. Uh, There's a story about um, a major tech company uh, involving Black Lives Matter. We take those stories, we present them to people in a well-produced and thoughtful little vignettes. And then we, we sandwich those between these dialogue pieces and we produce those at scale so that now you have ongoing education on how to interact, how to navigate these tricky people issues. And what the, the leader gets, the culture leader gets on the back end of that is are these AI powered insights. So they'll get a real pulse on what's happening in the culture at their company because they'll be able to see how folks answer and respond to these very specific scenarios and how these things play out in a workplace and say, hey, we've got on the one end, right, um, folks, 50% of folks on our team say that they feel like women are heard in meetings. Another 50% are saying that they don't. Here is where we can guide our efforts. Because other than that, right, without those types of insights to close the loop, most folks are kind of just guessing, right? Or they're going on this partial information that they got from their engagement survey. So that's the bulk of the work that we do is just sort of helping folks figure out how effective all the things they're already doing have been in affecting the experiences people are having uh, in the workplace and then provide some uh, prescriptive guidance as to how to address those things. And to call back to what you said uh, earlier on in that response, which is how 
uh, you know, in many cases, companies are just essentially counting people of color. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do a semi-decent amount of work in the DEI space. And one of the things I always laugh at is oftentimes the starting question is like, how do we get the black people involved in our initiatives? And I'm like, well, maybe the starting question shouldn't be, how do we get the black people involved in this? <laughs> what are the blacks thinking? Uh, no, I, <laughs> no, and that's the thing, right? Having been, having been the only in some of these situations and, and maybe you can relate, right? Then I end up representing the blacks. I end up representing like what they think in, in a lot of organizations that is what's happening. So again, to take it back to, if, if you're depending on these engagement surveys to make things happen, but you're asking questions to a group of people who are not having the same experience and where and not, not very many different walks of life are represented, then you're still not really getting an accurate uh, pulse on culture. And, and yeah. I think what I'm finding as I'm interacting with these folks who lead uh, culture and, 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 and are in these people leader positions is that there is a real passion and a real desire to, to have meaningful, lasting uh, cultural change on their, uh, in their workforce, in their environments. But they are under-resourced uh, when it comes yeah. to being able to actually have data and insights to help them get that buy-in that we are going to be talking about. One other just quick side story I want to share uh, that I think you'll find funny. In a uh, cultural agility workshop that I teach um, sometimes, uh, and I, I got this question from uh, my friend Levi, who's been on the show a couple different times in the past, and he's really emerged as a leader in this space uh, in the Chicago area. And uh, he, he gave me this idea to ask this question where after we talk about the idea of appro cultural appropriation to use like music as an example. And then the, you know, the question I'll, I'll throw out is like uh, if appropriation is, you know, borrowing without permission, you know, to, to boil it down, can someone like Eminem perform, you know, traditionally black music if he's white <laughs> And it's not meant to like push, you know, it's not meant to spin it in one direction. It's just meant to see like, how do people react to something like that? And then what comes to the surface? And one of the times when I asked that, someone was just like, you could see like the gears in their head were starting to like bounce and like explode off the machine. <laughs> and he was just like, what, what? I don't know, like permission. Like, who does he ask? Dr. Dre? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... You've given us a good background on M-Train. Now, our, again, our topic today, our main topic is coaching your champion to gain that executive buy-in. In your experience with M-Train, first, just let, can you walk us through who is your main point of contact and what are their initiatives, pains, needs, and goals? They are the chief diversity officers and the CHROs. Those are the folks I'm going to first. Often the conversations do involve a learning and development leader, right? Because those are the folks who have to do with installing like training programs, right? Um, and then the other dimension of that is whoever at the organization uh, is handling risk mitigation and compliance, right? So we deal with it in these three sort of dimensions, respect, ethics, and inclusion, and then the leaders thereof. I spend most of my time in the inclusion pillar um, for a couple of reasons, right? Um, number one is just that's the social climate that we're in. That's what a, a lot of the demand is from us. Number two, I just, I feel a personal calling 
when it comes to, to those issues. And number three, that's just some of my, some of my favorite content that M-Train offers. And, and so, so it's, it's typically a diversity office, a chief diversity officer, again, who often at an organization, when you look at the, the C-suite, you know, the CMO will have a budget, obviously, right? They'll have a marketing budget. The CEO will have whatever their, their sales or operating budget is. But oftentimes, even within the C-suite, these chief diversity officers don't have a dedicated budget outside of what are what I would consider performative or PR functions. And so when it comes to moving the needle, their hands can be tied unless they make the case. And the entire world has been trying to make this case for diversity for a long time. So those folks have got kind of an uphill battle and quite a bit of them accomplishing what they want to accomplish is wrapped up in whether or not they can get this executive uh, buy-in. So if they, let's say their, their last few years on their engagement survey, right? They're not happy with how they're scoring in this category or that, right? Those are things that they're accountable for and that they'll want to move the needle on, but might not know how right? Or there is a hard number that they're, and listen, quotas are illegal, but there is a percentage of their floor that they would like to see. There's, I, I say floor because I was thinking about salespeople, uh, but there's a percentage of their team that they have identified as lacking in representation. And so those are also numbers that they're trying to increase. And if they understand how those things interact with each other, right, then they can move the needle. That is to say, if my organization is hemorrhaging women because there are cultural issues here that make this place not fun or not attractive for women to work at, and I am, you know, the HR leader or the diverse leader, I'm on the hook for that. So now I've got to think about not just how to attract more of those folks like you were talking about to apply or to come here, but I have to diagnose and then prescribe as to what the cultural issues might be that are causing women not to want to stay here, right? Or whatever the group is, not to want to stay here or not to feel welcome in a sense of belonging. And when we look at the numbers, uh, we see this in the McKinsey report and um, several other um, pieces of research, the reasons why groups that are underrepresented in particular are leaving companies are culture reasons. Mm. So for the folks I work with, there is a lot at stake when it comes to getting this right. And again, that lack of executive buy-in is often the barrier that's in their way. Okay, so this chief diversity officer, this, this head of HR, in some cases learning and development as well. One of the first challenges I often see that account executives and salespeople face when it is a multi-stakeholder deal is in the first place, understanding who are all the different stakeholders at play. So what advice do you have or what strategies have you used to uncover that information and where in the sales process are you learning that? It's not going to be popular, but uh, I ask these things outright. I ask these things outright in uh, as, as early on in conversations as I possibly can in part in respect for their time and in part respect for mine. I think that there's a tone that folks sometimes are afraid to strike in these conversations and then because they don't want to seem less helpful by sound like they know what they're talking about. Right. And salespeople have a tough set of concerns to, to navigate because it's like, there are these perceptions out there that salespeople are up against. And so if we do push too hard or if we are too direct, then we can come off as self-serving prospect shuts down and doesn't give us the information that we need. But I, I even knowing that I still 
prefer the direct approach. So it would be something like I'm, I'm talking to this culture leader and we've got this common ground, right? That we both care about these issues and want to move the needle. And they're typically telling me that they're according to the PR statement that their company put out and according to what the leaders are saying uh, to the team that there seems to be a desire, a shared desire, right? But they just can't figure out why then the money doesn't come. And so I have to ask them straight up, like, who is it in particular on the team, right? Who's having the hardest time with this and what are they responsible for right now that they're having a hard time with that we could help them with, right? How do we draw, it's all about the use cases, right? How do we come up what the, separate from the, the ROI case, the specific what's in it for me for each stakeholder involved. Because what we know is that in, in tech sales in particular and, and in B2B overall, right, we're talking about a buying team that's going to be five to seven people at least in most cases. And so it's, it's not even anymore a question of, you know, if those folks are going to affect the journey, but it's about when. And I find it most effective to draw it out in the beginning. So I would just be asking straight up, like, who is going to, the last time you tried to get something like this done, what were the blockers, right? And what's different now from the way that it was then? And if it's not different, what do we need to do to make it different, right? I think people underestimate the power of these internal relationships and internal alliances to help move the needle on this kind of thing. Yeah, I really like the way you phrased that. The last time this came up, what were the blockers? So that leads to a quick follow-up question here. And one of the things that I think a lot of salespeople struggle with is, and I've seen it a lot in different demos that I've uh, coached and, and reviewed, and I really want to get your take on it, which is, how do you feel about asking the question in these words, who is the decision maker here? I don't like it just because I wouldn't use those words because it feels jargony, right? Decision maker is what we refer to them as in our Salesforce instance, right? Yeah, right. Um, it is not the way they refer to themselves, right? Unless they're like W, I'm the decider. They don't, uh, <laughs> which by the way was adorable. I find him incredibly lovable, although he's a person I disagree with on a great many things. Anyway, so I am Michelle Obama to the W's out there. But so, so yeah, right. Unless you're the decider, most people do not refer to themselves as the decision maker. And so there's this idea of, of meeting people where they are and talking to them like you're on the same side of the table as them. And somebody on the same side of the table would never refer to them as that. And so what I would ask is, right, let's say, Right. And this is at the demo stage when I'd be asking this yeah. or some, in some cases, like because of, because I'm doing this sort of player coach sales development slash inside sales rep hybrid role. Sometimes it's the first conversation where I'm saying, all right, Susan, we have this conversation. You and I already have all this stuff in common. We established, right. We already know that we have this passion for this, but for once I show you like this content, you're going to love it. And then we're going to talk about the ways that we've helped folks like, Netflix and Chevron achieve exactly what you're trying to achieve, right? Let's say things go the way I hope they're going to go and you love it, right? What happens next on your end? Who else is going to be even interested in 
whether or not you liked it. And then who has the power to break your heart? And wow, that's good. <laughs> who has the power to break your heart? I love that. And it's, so I, that's what it is, man. There's, there's no big secret. I'm, I'm just using... No, that was, I mean, I've never heard that before. That was, that, that was a big secret <laughs> unveiled, I'm telling you. I, I love the way you phrase that, and I've never heard a phrase like that before. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, don't, I can't help it. Uh, I'm really just talking to people as if they were, you know, people and not shying away from these little sprinkles, I think, of radical humanism. Mm. And, uh, and I think that that works in, in getting people to tr be more trusting and then tell you what the blockers are, which is the only way that you can get to this next step of actually bringing in all the other stakeholders without that is having to just wait for them to come and tell you, hey, I got to send this to my, my L&D person wants to look at it or you know, yeah. legal wants to look at it, all these things. Yeah. And from my perspective, often when I hear the who is the decision maker question, it can't, not always, but it, it, I think it runs a high risk of almost being insulting mm -hmm. uh, to that person. Um, like, and again, it's like, not always, but I do think it can almost be like, okay, well, who's the real person I need to be talking to here, right? right? Other ways that I like to ask those kinds of questions is who else will want to have eyes on this? Uh, and then after they've explained that, then doing another like follow-up of, okay, so you told me this, this, and this. Traditionally, or you know, in past you know, instances of going through this exercise uh, and, and selling this product to people like you, they've also had insert, you know, like legal has also gotten involved at this stage. Do you see that happening here? Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm, they're like, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, right. So you, you, you lean on past experiences to say, hey, other companies, this is typically how it works. That's the case here as well. And then even on top of that, a final question I like to ask is, okay, so now we've said you, this person and this person and this person that seems pretty involved, which is great. Is there anyone we're not thinking of right now who's going to feel left out if we don't include them? And in my belief, like these are the ways to like soften the blow of mm -hmm. figuring out this information while also kind of getting them to think about it in a different way. Not just like what's the line, what's the chain of command, mm -hmm. but who are the like ancillary players here who sometimes get involved? And you know, my belief is when you phrase it in that who's going to feel left out terminology. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. makes them think about it differently because you can have your hard stakeholders who do have in, who have power, mm -hmm. but you can also have people who are influential to the decision who don't necessarily have the power, but maybe in the past the purchase hasn't gone as smoothly mm -hmm. because their opinion wasn't solicited or after the product was purchased, they did not buy into it uh, using it because they weren't included beforehand. Right. And when they don't buy in, right, they become a blocker themselves, not just yeah. for the deal, but what, when I'm talking to folks, I'm talking about like, look, if we don't get this person enthusiastic yeah. about their use case, then what we put in place and what you're trying to accomplish is going to be in jeopardy. So not for my self-serving, I want to talk to everybody on your team and get my pitch in their ear. But for you, like you've told me that it's important to you to make, to move the needle on this. And, and so when I was listening to you talk just now, I thought about this is a place that I really like to tell a story. And just like you talked about, I'm telling the story in like a social proof voice of the customer kind of way. And I like to add a little color, right? Cause it's me. So 
to something like, okay, can I tell you my biggest fear? Mm. My biggest, what I'm afraid of, and this is because it's attacking you before and I have nightmares about it, right? Is like, you love this and you've shown me how, you've talked to me about how, you know, we can, it looks like we'd be able to really help you accomplish what you're trying to get done. And then I'm stuck in just following up email land uh, because I'm not hearing back with you. <laughs> and so, so that's happened to me before. And then when I finally heard back, what this woman had told me, and she was just like, she's chief diversity officer is she let me know that the, the CHRO was the person that needed to, to sign off on this. And they just didn't see the use case on their end. So, so that's what I'm afraid of. I need you to talk to me about why that's not going to happen here. Mm. And so in, in the one way, they're kind of selling you now on their ability to get this sure. done in their organization. Um, but it's more than that for me. It's creating this tone of collaboration between me and that person, me telling them a story about what happened before. And so you can do it one of two ways. That's the, the worst case scenario. Can I tell you my worst fear way? Um, and then the other way is just to tell a success story, right? So I was working with, you use one of your best customers' names, right? When I had this conversation, when I was trying to help such and such at Netflix get this done, she mentioned some of the things that you're talking about, right? That, you know, the, the CHRO just wasn't, you know, wasn't seeing the bottom line benefit or the L&D person is super about the technical stuff. And so some of the things that, that you're gravitating towards won't make sense to them. And so what we did was we created this tailored presentation for the L&D team and then one for the CHRO that talked about their use cases. And that's how we were able to help them get, the, get that done. So based on what you told me, I think that's our next step. So let's do this. I've got my calendar up. Let's meet blah, blah, blah. And I've, I'll have those, you know, presentations ready for you. And we'll, you and I will go over them and then you'll be ready for every single question that comes at you or a hole they try to poke in this because I'm, I really want to help you get this done. So that is how I would handle it on the other end, right? But for me, in either case, I'm telling a story. I am relating to this person and I am telling them either, you know, from my experience with folks just like them, why it didn't happen and then how I was able to get it to happen through this collaboration. Yeah, through, through a, a real scenario, not a hypothetical, but through exactly. an actual lived experience. And what I want everyone listening to really pay attention to in what Nikki just shared is that that right there is the coaching of your point of contact. That's helping turn them. And, I, and I'll say this, they don't start as your champion. They have to become your champion because you collaborate with them, because they believe in, in your product, right? And so assuming that they, you know, you've done a good job listening to them and explaining how you can help, that turns them into champion. And then what you just said right there is like really that beginning stage of coaching them for how to navigate this internally. And one thing we haven't uh, mentioned yet is just like some different terminology that I think is important here, mm -hmm. which is you have your point of contact slash champion. Then there is the influencer or influencers. There is the economic buyer and there is the decision maker. And these are all, you know, internal Salesforce terms, right? Sometimes one person can carry several of those roles. Sometimes those roles can be distributed across five different people, six different people who each only carry one, one of those roles. So in this process of learning, hey, who might break the heart, right? So I, I guess 
here's what I'm asking. Are you on your end mapping out as you're learning this information up front? Okay. And are you writing down like this person's an influencer? This person makes the decisions. This person is economic buyer. And is any of that found along the way beyond your initial conversation? Oh yeah. I'm looking at the account level. So I work with enterprise accounts. Most of the accounts, uh, the companies organization I'll be working with are all of them are a thousand employees or more. Most of them are going to be in that five to 10,000 employee range. Mm. And so from the beginning, I am doing a pretty significant amount of research before I even talk to anybody. And so I likely already know who the other stakeholders will be just based on their title and based on how, how I've seen these deals get done at other organizations. And what that typically leads me to do next, right? Once I figure out who are the players is I'm starting to consume their content, right? If, if these folks are at all posting things on LinkedIn, even if they're not like writing things themselves and just sharing articles, I can learn a lot from which like HBR article their L and D person has shared versus their CA, CHRO or even their CEO. And so I try to come to the conversation with some foundational knowledge so that I can be helpful right away and maybe, you know, and demonstrate that I care. So I might say something in that first conversation, like, right, in this who can break your heart conversation. Like I saw that I know this is something that such and such is, is kind of talking about. I saw their post on, on LinkedIn the other day but you'll probably be able to give me a little bit more insight on specifically how this affects her and when we should bring her into the conversation. Typically folks in that with that title come into the conversation, you know, pretty early, but I'd, I'd be really curious to hear from you, right? In other, you know, platforms that you guys are evaluating, how involved is she in these conversations? So things like that, or running some kind of recon for that person, right? So if this person tells me in the conversation, it's this person that could break my heart. Then I start to really, in the meantime, between this conversation and the next, which I'm definitely getting on the calendar before we got the phone, right? Yeah. Between this yeah. conversation and the next. Well, and we'll, we'll, we'll go to that part next in this I'm, conversation here, I'm, but yeah, continue. I'm consuming that person's content. And then when I find something that's relevant, I'm shooting it over to my champion, mm-hmm. right? Like, hey, I know you said such and such was going to be a blocker. Maybe this is our in. I saw that she was talking about X, Y, Z. Here's where I've seen those two things overlap before. So this is something to think about. Let's make sure we talk about that on our call on Friday. Yeah. Now that idea of booking the next call, right? So this is where you start to get beyond that initial conversation and the, the web must be weaved where it's not just that you learn these people are involved, but you also can't solely rely on your point of contact, your champion to just do it all for you and know exactly what to do in all cases. So how are you getting on the other people's radar? It is that content and that social that we talked about. I've likely already connected the first step yeah. in my- oh, Sorry, let me, let me, I guess let me, let me ask that a different way then. Are you only just sending it to your person to say, hey, send this to them? Or are you also connecting with these people on LinkedIn, starting side conversations with them, maybe getting emails out to them personally as well? Yep. So the side conversations are definitely happening. Step one, when I'm prospecting into an account, after that research piece is to connect with each of the folks I've identified as stakeholders 
at the organization. So I'm already connected with those folks, meaning that they're getting my content when I post and I'm able to see what they might respond to there. I'm also, of course, following their company page and seeing what types of things they're talking about at that level. But yes, so, so social and commenting on, so if I'm talking to the chief diversity officer and the chief diversity officer says, well, the CHRO is going to be the person that blocks this or, or doesn't see the money case, right? Then that's when I'm interacting with that CHRO, right? Commenting on their LinkedIn posts or sending them things that they might find helpful. And so there is that interaction. But what I'm typically doing is, is sending some type of initial contact out to that person first. And for me, a lot of the time, it just depends on who responds first between that culture leader and that HR leader proper, right? And the best case scenario is that I reach the HR leader proper and they say, hey, this is something that I know, you know, we're trying to move on, but I'm not as much hands on with it. Let me get you with, let me introduce you to my, my uh, chief diversity officer, in which case, obviously, there is no real lift when it comes to executive buy-in because we've got the chief executive of that function already involved at the top. And playing off of that, one of the things I like to do is, and coach teams on as well, is, you know, when they, when they tell you, yes, yeah, so-and-so needs to be involved, I will need to talk to them, you know, I'll talk internally with them, is not letting this fall to just they talk internally you find out after the fact what they talked about internally, or maybe they end up ghosting you. Because uh, that's not having real oversight or control or, or a collaboration with the process. So one of the things I often tell teams is to, when you start to figure out who these key players are, is offer up to your champion. Okay, so you know what? Why don't we get an email out to that person? Just letting them know, and, and this I should... I should give credit where credit is due. This tactic is inspired by something uh, uh, Devin Reed at Gong has talked about before. Why don't we get an email together just letting so-and-so know that this might come across their desk about a month from now or you know, about three weeks from now. They don't have to necessarily do anything about it today, but why don't we just let them know it's, it might be coming through if everything goes well on our side? Because, and some of the terminology I like to use is, you know, let's say it's CFO. Uh, I'll be like, you know, does your CFO like getting surprised when it comes to purchase decisions? You know, and they're like, uh, they'll like kind of laugh at that. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine they only like birthday surprises, if even that. A lot of people don't even like birthday surprises. <laughs> so why don't we like not surprise them and just let them know, hey, this is on the way and you're working on it in the background. They don't have to do anything. We just want to inform them that it's, it, it's coming. Would you, do you think that would work here? You know, and then you can even offer up to write the email for them. I love that because here's the thing, right? Even if they say no, you get valuable information mm-hmm. about how bought in they are, yeah. right? And so I really, really love that approach. It's pretty similar to, yeah, just the, the, the way that I'm having these, these conversations with people. And, and like I said, just taking this sort of direct approach to understanding who is involved and, and who needs to be involved. That's probably one of my favorite I've heard, but I'm not surprised, right? It's Devin Reed. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Shout out to Devin, my boy, who just had a little girl, actually. Um, last uh, one or two questions here before we begin our wrap up. So we've talked a lot about kind of the early and middle stages of the process. Now let's talk about the closing stages. You get to the proposal level. Is this something that you're 
aiming to do with everyone who's part of that process, like a proposal review together? Are you sending a document in advance for them to look over? How are you running the proposal stage? The standard is the two points of contact, right? My champion and the economic buyer being primary in that process. And then it's just a matter of when, if folks want to know why, and they typically understand this, but just effectively communicating that what we don't want for them, for the timeline that they've told me that they're working on, the worst thing that could happen at this critical point is too many cooks in the kitchen. I've, and then it again just comes from telling these stories from experience, right? So I've seen it. Everybody wants to you know, have some input and that is why we invited them to the conversation in the first place. But look, at this point, we've all decided on the things that involve the rest of these folks. But it can be really, really muddy and frustrating and time consuming to keep needing every single yes or no to be done by a committee. So let's do this, right? This is the part that you're specifically concerned with, this is the part that you're specifically concerned with. So I want you guys to both get eyes on this. But if we could just for, for the sake of efficiency, keep that decision between this smaller team, that's the way that I've seen these things go best and go most smoothly. And then wait for them to give me some kind of objection to it. Okay, so you're intentionally keeping it a smaller group as opposed to letting it become just like you said too many cooks but yeah a lot like just so many opinions you actually can't even like get anywhere with it right so then my follow-up and this will be the last thing before we we wrap up is mm -hmm. so, so you can do that but then what if there are other opinions that end up you know cutting you down at the knees after the fact like how, how do you still account for those man you're right you're right it could be difficult if those don't happen in that meeting and then follow up where everybody was involved, then yes, I, you could, one could very well be blindsided by things like that. And so that's why I guess in the way that I'm answering these questions, I'm depending very heavily on the relationship that I've at this point built, not only with the champion, but also with the economic buyer. If that relationship is strong, then even if one of these other folks expresses uh, a dissenting viewpoint, right, that's keeping us from moving forward, if I've built that trust, this person will tell me about it and I'll, I'll have this shot at overcoming it. If I haven't, then, you know, to an extent, right, it wouldn't have mattered what I did here because I already wasn't effective in building this trust and this, you know, rapport from the beginning. So it just hinges for me on that. And I'm, I, I recognize and I hear in your, in, in your question and why you're asking it that, yeah, I'm putting a lot of stake in that. I am betting on that. All right. Let's begin our wrap up. Where can our listeners learn more about you, learn more about your work and get in touch? All over these internet streets. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram at no Nikki Ivy. Uh, not no as in rejection, but no as in knowledge. So K-N-O-W Nikki Ivy. Um, at no Nikki Ivy for Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn, Nikki Ivy, I'm there all the time. Um, and sdrdefenders.com is where you can find our community, our content that we put out uh, to the end of uh, 
ending oppression of SDRs everywhere, democratizing right. access to the profession, uh, <laughs> and free pizzas on Fridays now. Uh, <laughs> really? I tried, I tried to earmark that, but nobody <laughs> didn't make it out of the house. But yeah, and that's where you can find me. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I will tell you, though, that my Twitter and Instagram inboxes are a lot more manageable uh, right now than, than LinkedIn. So if you really want to get a hold of me, I would say avoid the LinkedIn inbox dumpster fire and drive me on these other outlets. <laughs> All right. Who do you want to shout out, Nikki? Could be a coworker, colleague, mentor, friend. Who do you want to shout out in this game? Shout out to Stacey Abrams. No. Uh, shout out <laughs> But seriously. Uh, shout out to a couple of folks. Um, a gentleman named Brent Cole, who was the first person to hire me for a sales job when I moved to Austin. And who, uh, when I was just a, a little scared sales baby who needed to be in the back of the building with nobody around uh, in order to make a single phone call because I was so nervous and not confident, uh, he stuck with me through that and once said to me, if you could uh, invest in people like the stock market, I would put it all on you. And in that, real style. Yeah, yeah. It, it was... A, <laughs> And, but that was, it was in a time when I was, I was really in need of, of a, a confidence boost of remembering like who I am. So shout out yeah. to Brent Cole. Um, shout out to Scott Lease, who is just out here fighting the good fight and helping folks get jobs left and right. And who has been really instrumental uh, in a lot of my opportunities. And shout out to Sweetfish Media and everybody there for teaching me everything I know about content-based networking and about how to turn relationships into, into revenue. Oh, that really turned into like the end of a rap song right there where the, the rapper just starts like name dropping like a hundred people. <laughs> I, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the old, uh, on Jay-Z's Black album, the final song, it was called My First Song, but it was his last song, it was supposed to be his retirement song. And the last two minutes is him just like shouting, or shouting people out. And he, he's like, it, it just gets to be like a, such a ridiculous point where he was like, what up, Emery? What up, Tal? Yo, yo, you ain't got no seat on your on your bicycle. And what about what about the dog peed on homie's leg and shit? <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm, I'm a pretty big Jay Z fan. You didn't even know that, and here we are. <laughs> okay, um, so final uh, takeaways for the listening audience today. I'll go first, and I'll toss it to you. Sure. Uh, my biggest uh, lesson out of this conversation, when we and, and the, to reiterate the topic, was coaching your champion to gain executive buy-in. To me, this comes down to you have to, so there's a sales process that you're following, but within that sales process, you must have a communication strategy. If you don't have the communication strategy, your sales process won't matter. From everything we talked about and the, the, the awesome knowledge you shared, to me, that's what this is about. Coaching your champion is about the communication strategy. Uh, Nikki, top lessons or takeaways? I think it's about having an intimate understanding of the, your champion's use case and your economic buyer's use case that's how you're going to be the most effective. And, and as you pointed out in the larger conversation, that starts before you ever even have your first conversation. Mm. So viewing yourself as someone who is a member of the industry that you work in versus someone who sells into that industry, just that mind shift. And then directly asking for the things that you want. I know that seems really obvious, but it's just not something everybody is doing, right? 
and then betting on yourself, right? Building that trust and that rapport with you and your champion. And once you get access to who and whatever other stakeholders that you get access to, right? Leveraging social to nurture and firm up those relationships and then keeping it, like you said, to the, to the point of the communication strategy, keeping the tone of that communication as, again, personal and conversational as possible. Yeah. My final question, which is how we end every episode on the show, fill in the blank, Nikki. Entrepreneurship is blank. Entrepreneurship is increasingly black and female. We are the fastest growing group of folks starting new businesses in America. And we're doing that uh, against some really tough odds. Uh, and so when I think about entrepreneurship, that's what strikes me first. This, this idea that that is the real American dream, right? Which is access to opportunity that is built on resilience, self-reliance, and leaning on members of your own community for support and encouragement along the way. I think that's what we're seeing when we look at different, more traditionally underrepresented groups within entrepreneurship starting to grow. I think that's what's, what's affecting that, right? Is this, this sense of community, this resilience, this grit. Um, so that's what I think of. Hoping her true female founders know that be the truest shit she ever spoke. Against all odds, Tupac Shakur said it 25-something years ago. Nikki, thank you so much for joining today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. This is a wonderful conversation. I truly appreciate you taking the time. And an early happy birthday. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.